As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think you're full This is a podcast about board games called So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my very good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? I'm good. Another full week of online gaming because we are not allowed to see anyone we care about because that is the new rule of the world. Yes, we are merely stuck at home with our families as opposed to the people we care about, namely the people we play games with. So enough of the doom and gloom. On to what makes us happy and gleeful. This is a podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. Then we are going to talk about our feature game, which is Simon's Dogs of War. Mark, what did you play this week? Played some more sessions of By Stealth and Sea. This is the solo war game by Nicholas Sagini and David Thompson. Got this as a review copy from DVG. This is about the Italian men in World War II who basically rode torpedoes under the surface of the, of the sea to their targets. You know, one of those stories that has to be read about in detail to be believed. Uh, <laughs> I really, this is one of the things that I really like about historical war gaming, really shedding light on some of these quite unbelievable escapades in history and sure enough the game captures a lot of that unbelie unbelievableness because it's a cascade of terrible failures because at the beginning of the campaign and indeed for much of the campaign these machines were basically in the words of the designer himself just junk so you're you're constantly having machines fail around you it's kind of like space alert but more grim in that, in Space Alert, you've got all these threats coming at you all the time, but in the context of By Stealth and Sea, it's just system failure after system failure after system failure. And let me just tell you what happened in my most recent segment. One of my torpedoes was off to a great start, you know, submerged successfully, went off towards its merry way towards the harbor. Another one of my torpedoes uh, immediately had a ballast fault, so it couldn't submerge. And on the first turn, 
it had a patrol boat show up just in front of it. So it got detected, the alarm got sounded, a patrol boat got there, and so now it has a a malfunctioning ballast and no ability to get away from this patrol boat and no ability to protect itself from the patrol boat's predations. Uh, My crew died on turn two. They just got completely overwhelmed. It was uh, a a hilarious failure, and uh, also simultaneously, you know, very grim, because this is, after all, a historical event, and you have the names of the crews printed right there on the cards. And for somebody with a grim sense of humor like myself, I was able to get some sort of uh, comic appreciation, albeit darkly, out of the Cascade of Failures. Now, my other torpedo crews went went off and did their thing and had... A cascade of failures later on in that they were close to their targets and they kept trying to detach the limpet mine from the front of their submersible torpedo, but it didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't work and then the fuse wouldn't light and a whole bunch of other stuff happened. But so, so they got their failures later on. And I have to say that in terms of providing narrative, in terms of providing a series of, of very compelling and very striking little portmont, uh, uh, little scenes, by South and Sea really is very, very good. And that is one of the things that a lot of historical war games do very well, give you these rich tapestry of vaguely historical events with, a, with enough historicity to inform the context, but not necessarily reproducing the same outcome that happened historically. Quality of decision-making? Not super hot. And some some of the things that they do is they shed light on things like you just talked about, how uh, how war really pushes technology, right? Because a lot of times you don't hear about all these little uh, modifications and or subcategories of weapons or vehicles or stuff. And these these uh, designers that do the research into these things want to put little twists on their scenarios or campaigns. So they add these things that pushed the technology so much further and led to all these innovations that we see today. Yes, and my understanding is that Nicholas Seguini, uh, David Thompson's co-designer, was one of the the people who really drove a lot of the historical research, because a lot of this is technically informed. It's a very simple game, very approachable, very accessible, but the level of technical understanding of these bizarre weapon systems that really didn't work very well, but nonetheless were iterated over the course of the war, it's a a bizarre technical field. And in that sense, it's very similar to another solitaire war game that I talked about a few months ago, The Hunted. In that it's a very technically focused about the nature of the weapon systems and the technological developments that happened over the war. Very different styles of game, though, in that by Stealth and Sea, as I say, is a lot more accessible, a lot simpler, a lot faster. And The Hunted is more about a slightly more protracted look at the career of a submariner, or in that case, somebody who, who uh, commands a U-boat. And... Just like in The Hunted, the quality of decision-making is not what I would call high. It's long on narrative, short on decision-making, long on luck. Uh, Because as I say, it could just be the case that on turn two, your crew is going to get completely kneecapped by virtue of a series of random events and bad die rolls. Which again, is is also a hallmark occasionally of your historical war game. I enjoy By Stealth and Sea. It's definitely different from a lot of other things in the market. But it is not necessarily, as I say, what I would call long on decision making. But the quality of the narrative evocation is definitely solid. So I've been enjoying my time with By Stealth and Sea. That's a perfect segue into a game that I played this week. Historical World War II. I played Dinosaur Tea Party, Mark. (laughs) Now this is a very interesting little game. And I think it would be... Not as fun. This is this is one of those odd games that just plays better on Board Game Arena or on this online implementation than I think that it would in real life. It's sort of like Guess Who, Advanced Guess Who. You have all these uh, 
guests, they're dinosaurs at a tea party and they're either eating cake or they have necklaces or they have a colored background or they have hats or they're drinking or eating cake or they have teeth or they have. Oh my goodness. And they're all, and they're all these modifiers that are on the bottom of their card. So it's none of these things where you have to like figure out what the differences are. It'll say, you know, that they have these things on them. So you can start asking people questions. Everyone has their random, you know, you have this big array of dinosaurs and everyone has their actual dinosaur who they are. And you can play the advanced <laughs> game where one of the dinosaur, one of the dinosaur always lies. One of the dinosaurs keeps flip-flopping on their answers. It'll be a yes, no, yes, no, back and forth. And the other <laughs> and there's another one just says always just says no to everything. So you got to wor- worry about these three random dinosaurs. You might even be one of these dinosaurs. You, you just, you don't get to decide. So when it's your turn, what you're doing is you just start asking questions like, does your dinosaur have a hat? And as long as you keep hitting yes answers, you can keep asking questions. And then you sort of narrow down who's who, and then you make a guess. And if you're right, you get a point. And the first person to three points uh, wins the game. So if you guess wrong once, then it goes on to the next player. So this is why it's great with the online implementation. So once your turn, you just keep asking questions. And, you know, I guess if you game it out, you want to keep asking the same person. You don't want to keep, you know, going back and forth between dinosaurs or players because you're just going to give more information to the other players and you're going to definitely want to going to narrow down your answer quickly or else, like I said, you're just giving away all of the information. I thought it was great. I can't wait to play more. I'm in about two different games of dinosaur tea party. I have to try this game. It sounds like a trip and a half. The art is fantastic. It's amazing. It's like these, these dressed up dinosaurs sipping tea. It's a fantastic little game. It's from a couple of years ago, and I can't believe I haven't heard of it before. It just came out on Board Game Arena, <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm really enjoy playing it. I have a question for you about your childhood experiences. Did you ever play Guess Who as a child? I did not. Okay, because I I have a very distinct memory of having to explain to several different people at the age of I don't know what that somebody could still have hair on their head. And nonetheless be bald. Anyway, that's my anecdote from childhood board gaming experiences. <laughs> I've always, I always remember wanting to play Guess Who. I remember watch, always seeing the commercials and, and, and wishing I had I had that game because it looked like super fun. I don't think it would be as fun as Dinosaur Tea Party, though. It doesn't sound like it. I mean, for one thing that I will say about Guess Who that was definitely uh, uh, formative for my future hobby experience is that one of the design defects of the edition that I played is that there was a very, very heavy gender bias in favor of men. There were, like, far more men than there were women. So if your first question was, are you a, are you a man? And the answer was no. It's like, great, I've got you. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, you can make of that what you will. So additionally, Walker, we get to play Guards of Atlantis 2. We've been playing Guards of Atlantis 2 off and on in various pre-production versions. We played it at Shucks, we played a print-and-play version, and we played this on Tabletopia. We played it with a, a four-player game because Guards of Atlantis 2, unlike a lot of the other MOBA-style games, in is a multiplayer game that's not really good with two players. It's best with many, many people. And... As always, the dizzying character variety and the tremendous texture that you get from the different character styles continues to blow me away. And like any good game with with 
legitimate textural difference in terms of character choice. Some people take the characters very well, and some people don't take the characters very well. In this particular case, I just just want to flag Dewey. Dewey took to a very complicated, very specific, very combo-based character extremely well, and very quickly he he just hit the ground running, and he was pulling off these incredibly weird, very fragile but very impressive combos where he was playing out three or four cards all at once and rushing people like crazy. And then, of course, if they so much as looked in his direction cross-eyed, he would then fall over dead. But it was impressive while it lasted. I had a blast playing Guards of Atlantis 2. I always do. It's a game not really for people with a low threshold of frustration because, as I say, these characters work in very specific ways and you can build them in different ways. But sometimes it's very difficult to get the abilities to work the way they're supposed to work. Because they're very conditional, and it's very tricky. Everything needs to be thought out two or three steps ahead, but that's one of its virtues. And it's not for everybody, but then again, a lot of great games aren't. And I had a blast playing Guards of Atlantis too. What did you think, Walker? I always loved it. I still love it. I think you could almost put yourself... If, if you don't really like uh, fighting games, you might not like Guards of Atlantis, even though, you know, because the characters have such... Uh, such different powers even though you're going to get to know the powers a lot more than you would in a fighting style game because a lot of times you're just still drawing new cards every turn this one you're going to get to know the powers because they're almost identical you know they upgrade a little bit but they're pretty well the same gate uh turn after turn but i agree with everything that you said i love how the characters are all different i love how you can choose two characters and they can combo off each other and and really help each other and they can work together in in weird and unique ways and even if they're not working that way i was reading some things where you know it's like well if you if your partner didn't take this character then you switch over to these other abilities and it's just an all-around interesting game i really love how when you level up you have two choices and then when you don't take it gives you a benefit anyway all of these things are great art is fantastic i can't wait till you get your actual copy and then uh, fun will be had Just to give you an example of the kind of trade-offs and decision-making that can happen, the last turn of the game, I was trying to chase you down. Because in order to kill somebody, in order to kill another hero in Guards of Atlantis, it is almost impossible to do it with just one attack. There are situations where you can pull off, but usually it's a question of cornering them, wearing them down, or coordinating with your partner, because team play is super, super crucial. But we were in a position where it was coming down to the wire, I knew you had one more card to play, and I tried to remember, and I had the intuitive recollection that your card was faster than mine, and it was either an attack or it was a move, and you could do either one or the other. And so I figured, okay, well, if I play my attack now, and he sees that I've got the attack and he beats me, he's just going to run away, and then I don't have my attack left. And I'm not going to be able to kill him. So what I have to do is I have to waste time because I've got more card advantage over him. I've got to let him burn through that last card so he can't defend against my attack when it happens next turn. So I'll play a movement now, corner him, make sure I can... Anyway, it's those kinds of decisions that, again, are informed by the card play that you saw over the course of the turn. was informed by the fact that I was being backed up by my ally who had stripped one of your cards by virtue of his having attacked you early in the round. Wonderful, wonderful game. I love the team play dynamics, love the card play. But again, I wouldn't recommend it for people with a low frustration threshold because these kinds of trade-offs, you have to be able... This is one of those ways in which I really appreciate your perspective as a player, Walker. You, you, You very often approach a game and it's like, okay, this ability didn't work properly. I failed to play it correctly. And very often you'll be like, this fascinates me. I want to try this again so I can get it to work the way that I want it to work rather than saying, well, this ability is dumb. It doesn't work properly. And... 
that people with that kind of perspective that love puzzling out these kinds of things, I cannot recommend Guards of Atlantis highly enough. And yeah, as you say, can't wait for it to come out in a physical version. And that is Guards of Atlantis 2, which we streamed. What other game did we stream? We also streamed Uwari. And I don't know how I can say. It was on the top of my list. It was a fantastic game that we it plays so quickly and has so much decision space that we actually got two games in. And it is just an all-around fun game. You're doing uh, area majority. You're 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 playing out routes. You're trying to do hand management. You're trying to force your opponents to make certain moves. You're threatening them in some areas to force them to move somewhere else. It's it's just a I I love Uwari. It was originally designed in a period that I commented during the stream that was that was very characteristic of the certain kind of very light, very accessible, but very confrontational Euros. And I really miss that area majority is not done more frequently in Euro-style games. I mean, look, I love tableau building when it's done well. I love worker placement when it's done well. More on that later, actually. But there's something about the pure confrontation in a very accessible area majority game that's very, very appealing. Like, we trash talk all the time, and it doesn't take a dice-heavy combat game to really get your ire up and really get that sense of competition going. And this isn't the only way to appreciate board games. Let me make that very, very clear. Multiplayer Solitaire is still very much my jam. But there's nothing quite like Iwari or Han or whatever Power or China, whichever version you have, where where everything is stripped away such that it's really about edging out that last in this case, Totem, edging out that last tent, making sure you get to that junction before somebody else does, appreciating the tempo of when to bust into a region and when to wait for someone else to bust in that region. We were saying terrible, terrible things to each other precisely because we were all in each other's way all the time. And there's something great about that level of interactivity in a simple, approachable Euro game that plays out in 30 to 45 minutes. One of those games where you got to be able to swing immediately if you see that there's a huge push on Totems or... Or everyone's filling up areas. You got to know when to slide into different strategies and know when it's your time to strike type thing. Know when there's a good place to get points. 100%. And as you said, with respect to the decision space and how different every game can play, the first game was determined by the person who managed to eke out a win in totems in terms of the competition there. But the second game, partially informed by that, the people who were fighting over totems were fighting over diminishing returns. And the person who won ignored totems entirely and said, you guys can go mess with that. That's too expensive. I'm going to go get these points elsewhere. And it's exactly what you say. It's that level of reactivity of reading the board, reading other players' intentions, finding out where the points are to be found. And it's this this is a perennial Euro design by Michael Schacht. I'm glad it's back in print. I will refrain from quibbling about the nature of the production of this version, although I guess I just did. I'm just glad it's available. Find whatever version you can and play the heck out of it. This is an amazing game. That's a worry. I pulled out Battlecon Unleashed again. This is a review copy sent to us by Level 99 Games. And the specific thing that I wanted to see was how they had dealt with the wealth of material that was present in Devastation of Indians. Because several years ago, Devastation of Indians was one of those Kickstarters that became a sprawling kind of kitchen sink, every idea they could find to throw in sort of deals. Hey, here's a stretch goal that's an entire expansion. Oh, by the way, I thought of this other entire expansion that I can throw in uh, here. Have all this stuff. 
And to a certain extent, a lot of this stuff has been rendered obsolete, which is entirely understandable. We're not talking about Battlecon being its fourth edition, its fourth iteration. They've changed how Force works. They've changed how different bases work and so forth. All for the better. But I was very uh, struck by the fact that in Battlecon Unleashed, in the revision to Devastation, they had kept the solitaire version. Had They kept the solo and co-op dungeons. And I was very surprised because it was one of the many ancillary things that had been tossed in. And I was glad that they decided to keep it in and, and issue some revisiting. So I decided to go back to it. And I still love the fundamental card play of Battlecon. It's meant to be a fighting game, and it's fundamentally about making these attack pairs, a style and a base together. And that gives you a tremendous amount of variety in terms of how you manage your offense and your defense. But absent the double think of playing against another player, uh, I don't think it sings to its full capacity, especially since I found that in the new version of the solo and co-op dungeons, it kind of falls prey to the same problem that the original versions did, which is there is usually an obvious path to go pursue in terms of besting whatever adversaries there are. Like for example, one of the things you can do is kit out your fighter before the dungeon starts. But one of the obvious tricks that it's not the the only way to do it, but one of the obvious tricks that I pursued is t- upgrading one of your attacks to the version that can hit everybody in a line. So suddenly, that that conga line of four zombies in, in front of you, you don't have to worry about them ganging up on you. You just do the one attack and kill them all. Turn one, you win, go on. And this is obviously not true of all dungeons, but it's just an indication of the kind of rote puzzle-solving element that Battlecon avoids in its actual version. So suffice to say, uh, there's still tremendous quantity of content here, and I'm glad that they've revisited some of the earlier stuff, but I don't think it's Battlecon's strength. Uh, it is definitely the case that this is still solidly a two-player game, and trying to outthink, outsmart your opponent, not entirely unlike Guards of Atlantis 2. And the dungeon version, I'm glad they went back to it, I'm glad they brought back some of this old material, but all in all, I don't think that this is uh, quite at its strength, but I just wanted to revisit it for partially the sake of nostalgia and partially also just to see if they'd fundamentally improved on it. And that was my further experience with Battlecon Unleashed. Just because you brought up Guards of Atlantis 2 again, I do want to just quickly go back and say, when a designer shows up to a stream where nobodies are playing to make sure you're playing it right, that is a sense of dedication that I have to talk about <laughs> and, 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 and tells you how great this game is, how much they, you know, dedicate themselves to this game. Anyway. Oh, oh there's, there's a super dedicated community. And I also couldn't help but notice that a whole bunch of people showed up uh, just to constantly tell us how dumb we were being with respect to our play, which is absolutely true. The skill ceiling in Guards of Atlantis is really high, and we are but fumbling idiots. Moving on, I got to play Whistle Mountain again. Unfortunately, the first play was a little bit plagued because we had I had some technical difficulties that I was constantly trying to work through while I was trying to play at the same time. But I got to go back to it and play a game, got to play an actual game. And I'm really <laughs> interested on how it plays out so differently every time because you're building this weird, puzzly Tetris thing. And the way it took shape in the second game is like this giant tower that arose up the middle of the of the board and instead of, you know, ours that slowly creeped in a, like a, in a standard level, we made this like crazy tower that rose up as people were trying to get their, you know, workers retired out of the game at super high points. And it it just made the game, you know, the timing of the game seemed to go faster because now that, you know, every time we put a thing in the water level would raise a lot faster because now we're, you know, branching buildings off the side of this, this weird tower. And I just found that interesting in a game that, in a game that seemed 
a little bit light that it had so much difference every time you played it. Did you find that the different buildings substantially altered one style of play, or was it more just one's approach to the overall tower? I, I am afraid that it was just the the overall approach. It, it did break down to exactly the same sort of thing. It didn't matter what building you put in. You just wanted to get the building out so you could get your meeples on the board and then cover them up with the, you know what I mean? Like put out the scaffolding, put your guys out, cover up with, with whatever building you just happen to be able to buy or whatever one was the most victory points really. And then, and then move on. That's unfortunate. That was one of my concerns. I'd happily play Whistle Mountain again. It was perfectly pleasant. That was my one disappointment. I, I really wished that, like a game like Kalis or Kalis 1303 or other worker placement games of that elk, you really cared about what you were doing to the economy, both for your purposes and to other, other people. But if it was just a question of the same old cycle that we had, put the worker out, crush the worker, get the victory points, eh, that's a little disappointing. Yeah. I had a really interesting power right from the you know the power that you get to be in the game. Mine, mine was if I put a meeple beside another meeple, I'd get victory points. So it led to me wanting ah. to cycle a little more often, which I found a little interesting, right? Because I'd save my guy from the whirlpool and then get him, you know, up on the thing, up on the scaffolding, and right, and that's like a, a swing of nine points every time I did that because it was four points for putting beside someone, five points rescuing. It's just it was I like. I like how they all have these different powers that sort of lead your strategy into playing the game differently than you would every other time. Has anyone offered a satisfactory explanation for why throwing two gold bars at a drowning worker saves them? Not yet. All right. Well, we'll get to work on that, Walker. Maybe you're not like I didn't. We already talk about that. Maybe you're not. Maybe the girders are actually made out of like ectoplasmic catching material and you're actually killing them and then harvesting their souls as they rise up through your structures. Isn't that how it works? This is news to me. I think I would have remembered something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And that is Whistle Mountain. It was something, that's for sure. Lastly for me, Charterstone Digital was on sale a couple weeks ago, so I picked it up. I thought, hey, the online implementation surely will cut down on all this crazy time of putting on stickers and reading through hundreds of little captions and and going through all the tedium of of what is Charterstone. And I have to report that, no, it's just as tedious and painful, even when the computer takes care of all this stuff for you. They give you all these really interesting and cool workers, and then even near the end, they bring out a mission that says, hey, you don't even get to use these workers. Go back to the basics where you only get your two workers and play an entire game like that just so you can do nothing. It was it was interesting. I might play it one more time because the different colors you play are totally different strategies, so I wouldn't mind trying... I forgot what color that I was when we played, and I accidentally fell into the same color, so it was the same sort of... Oh, no. Get the pumpkins, use the pumpkins. (laughs) And I know know the other colors will be more of the same. It'll be get one resource and use that resource, but they do use them in different ways. Like, I was watching what the computer was doing, and it was a totally different sort of mechanism than what I was doing, so I'm interested to see how it works. And then other things are that there's, like, certain buildings that you don't a new player wouldn't fully understand what they did even i was just clicking through them so quickly it's like oh uh, that building might be okay and i just i just let it go and had i kept that building and had it in my area from the beginning it would have changed the other game so drastically instead i built you know what i mean it, it was just so weird anyway that is charterstone digital 
if you can get it for a buck oh five, then give it a whirl. <laughs> and those are the games we played this week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. We have tons of news. I don't know why there's so much news. Usually at this time, like right after Christmas, there's usually nothing to do except wait for a bunch of award ceremonies. But there is a lot of news for whatever reason. Mark, what do you have first? Well, first off, we have an important addendum to our 2020 Year in Review episode. We forgot about three different games involving animals. Uh, two that we are looking forward to in the coming year, and one that was one that got away that I really wanted to try over the course of 2020 but didn't get to. The two that we're looking forward to, and we, we I, I was just kicking ourselves at not having to mention this, is Kabuto Sumo and Crash Octopus. Two visually delightful, who knows if they're actually going to be fun, games that are coming up. And I was reminded of this by Yuri Yura Penguin, your epic-making, of course, unboxing of Yuri Yura Penguin. Can't wait to play that game. Looks adorable. And the game that got away that I forgot to give another shout-out to is Scapegoat, the social deduction game that claims to be good at low player counts is by the same designer of Airland and Sea. So I'm very, very much looking forward to all three of those games in the coming year, and I, I feel desperately ashamed and embarrassed that I didn't mention them last time. Mark, I read the rules to Your Your Penguin, and I'm, I'm very optimistic that it will play as a game. <laughs> like not that it wouldn't. No, no, but you know what I mean. But you know how these, you know, like we always talk about how dexterity games fall apart at the end, and the and the ending is sort well, of not just all peters of out, or well, a lot of them. Then, yeah, sure. But I'm just saying this. This I don't want to talk about it until I've actually played it. But it has a lot of tropes from from older games, and it feels as though that it will come to a, a decent conclusion and or end. So on to some other news. How about Battlestar Galactica? Ares Games had had the license to do Battlestar Galactica, and for whatever reason, they could not renew this partnership with uh, Universal Brand Development, and so now they must drop all of their Battlestar Galactica stuff. So they're going to have to be selling all their product off, and uh, this is very bad news, Mark. It is the way of licenses. Sometimes you lose them for weird reasons. I mean, the hobby games market is not even a rounding error for most of these media studios, so... They had a bunch of expansions and other stuff that were announced. Apparently, it's all going to be released, like a faster-than-light counter set, and all this stuff is going to be released as free PDFs, but nothing else will be put out. I feel bad for them. They had to put in all that design work for stuff that they're not going to be able to sell. That's unfortunate. And I have to imagine that they expected the license to be renewed, and something strange happened that took them by surprise. It's too bad. So Board Game Geek has been selling prints from a variety of board game artists. They've done four series so far. We have in our household uh, three of those prints, Mysterium, Galaxy Trucker, and Race of the Galaxy. And initially when this was announced, I didn't think that there was going to be much intersection because the print would have to be something that I liked the look of that I'd want to hang out on my wall and a game that I really thought was excellent. And usually those kinds of intersections don't happen. I commented last week on Pledge of Indifference that very rarely do I find that companies want to sink money into blinging out components of games that I actually like. You know, I get those emails from various companies like, we have a new deluxe resource set for this game that you think is mediocre. And it's like, oh, well, that's awfully pretty, but what am I getting? You know, it's not something I want to do. But I was very, I've been very pleased with the Artist Series so far. They're starting Artist Series 5 now. 
They're going to be showing a new one every day of this week. The one that they've shown right now as time of recording is a print of King of Tokyo by Miguel Coimbra. I'm not a huge fan of King of Tokyo. I wouldn't want it on my wall, but I really like Miguel Coimbra's work, so it's it's very striking in terms of the design, and I'm very much looking forward to what else they've got. So if you want to see what else is coming up in the Board Game Geek Artist Series 5, you can go check the front page of Board Game Geek, and by Friday, they will have shown previews of all the prints. Nice. So Colossal Games is going to have another Kickstarter. Now, years ago, there was a name, uh, game called Frag. The PvP genre is huge, and now they're going to be bringing out a game called reload it's sort of like a roll your dice allocate your dice pvp style type game and from the brief little snippets that i saw it seems kind of interesting it can't be worse than frag it would be very hard for it to be worse than frag that is true there's going to be an expansion to Nadavalier. In point of fact, there already is an expansion to Nadavalier. it is called i'm not making this up thing but remember in the context of vikings thing means gathering space so it's not like they they named it whatchamacallit Valir or whatever Valir, nor is this what Walker tries to refer to Nadavalir as because he can't remember what the game is called. This is actually what it's called. It's called Thing Valir. More cards, a new mechanic whereby if you are the highest bidder in a given area, you can go and get cards off to the side, which might amp the tension because in some cases you don't really care about what's going on in a particular bidding area so everyone bids low because it's indifferent, which is fine. I mean, the game still moves at a good clip, but if you make it so that every auction is that much more impactful, I, I have to imagine that that does good, good things for the game. It's already out in France. I'm very eager to give it a try. I very much like Ndavalier, and I think it's uh, definitely worthy of repeat plays, and so I'm very curious to see what thing Valir brings to the table. All right, in news of expansions, the Taverns of Tiefenhall is going to get an expansion. It's a little light, little fun game that I really enjoy, and I'm, when there's more, more is better. Any idea what this expansion does? You know, the usual thing, another room, another card, you know, it's just a bunch of ah. stuff that you can add on. It's more stuff. More stuff. Four modules. Well, four is more stuff than three is more stuff. It is. It's one more stuffs. Good point. You see, it's that kind of mathematical analysis that you turned it so very wrong about games for. Exactly. Frédéric Gérard, the designer of It's a Wonderful World, is going to be releasing a sort of spiritual sequel called It's a Wonderful Kingdom. Instead of a multiplayer drafting game, this is going to be a two-player, I-split-you-choose game. But it's going to have that same excellent production system that It's a Wonderful World has, where resources are produced in a fixed order, and you can use the resources you produce early in the round to finish a building that will let you produce later in the round, and you're competing with your opponent to produce more. This is going to be kickstarted later on in the year. It's also going to be published by Boite Jeune. It's got the same striking art style that is very, very much up my alley. And if you're at all in the interest of an I Split You Choose game, then take a look at It's a Wonderful Kingdom. Yeah, this is sort of leading to a bunch of stuff that I have listed here. And it led me to believe that I'm wondering if a lot of these designers had sort of like either a solo mode or two-player mode sort of on the back burner. And no one was really interested. But now with all this new stuff happening, there's such a huge demand for solo and two-player. These are all coming out. So now there's a solo mode for Concordia coming out. And Australia, which is very odd, right? Like we played it last week for just random reasons. And now they're going to have an expansion. Australia is going to have a Tasmanian dual map expansion that now is for one to two players. Obviously, it's purely because we decided to give it some attention that they've decided to expand it. Obviously, right? They said, well, if these guys are playing it, then we might as well push this expansion out. That's obviously what happened. Absolutely, 100%. 
I am super excited about this next game that I want to talk about. It's supposed to be coming out in June. Who knows? It's called Oltre. It's by Antoine Boza, who's one of my favorite French designers. And it's got beautiful artwork by Vincent Dutre. It's got a diverse cast. I am hugely in favor of what I've seen already in Oltre. Great designer, great art, great setup, great universe. This is apparently adapted from a French role-playing system that I have never heard of. And it's got a series of different scenarios that are not connected in an overarching campaign. So yay on that. Because, again, I'm, I'm, I've got a little bit of campaign fatigue with some minor exceptions. And the artwork just completely blows me away. I'm always in favor of the artwork of Vincent Dutré. And I cannot wait to see how this develops. Because Antoine Bozo, with a couple of minor exceptions, has never failed to at least intrigue. So that is Oltré. That is going to be put out, one hopes, by about June. All right, Mark, you know when someone gets too much power, they always get back at people who wronged them in, in the past. You know, they Why are you looking at me power. like that, Walker? They always use their power for for evilness. No, th- this has nothing to do with my next story, which is now Fantasy Flight <laughs> Games. Fantasy Flight Games is now falling even further. They've decided that they're going to remove all their forums from their website. So, So all of that digital information, all of those places that people go to communicate and and enjoy that particular facet of the hobby is now just going to disappear. I'm not sure what's happening with FFG. Just they're losing more and more stuff. And it feels as though Asmodee just wants to drive them right into the ground because, you know, there was such a big competition for them at the beginning. This is all just random commentary for me. But anyway, that's now happening. It's a little sad to see what's been happening with FFG, and you're right, this is just another step along the seemingly inexorable decline of a one once great hobby brand because the parent company has just decided to take all their assets, intellectual and otherwise, and either abandon them or shove them to some other division. Seems odd. So if you have anything that you want to save on the Fantasy Flight forums, they go down February 1st, 2021. Three very, very quick things. Go for it. Very interesting thing coming from Simon Games. Uh, there's a lot of these uh, skirmish, two-player skirmish games coming out, like Verse that we talked about, coming out with one called Mayhem. And the Kickstarter that's going to come out is going to have Teen Titans Go and Looney Tunes. And, of course, because of Simon, they'll have about 37 other box sets because of stretch goals. But uh, they're all like pre-painted figures. The map seems very abstracted, but it's it's the same sort of quick skirmish game with miniatures. Games Workshop has a nice preview out for the Lizardmen unit for Warhammer Underworlds. And then my uh, quick role-playing uh, news. I love the Dark Crystal, and now they're going to do a, a entire role-playing system for the Dark Crystal. It's unfortunately by the same company that did the Labyrinth board game and the Dark Crystal board game, which were not so fantastic. But let's hope that at least it'll be a good read. And lastly for me is Darwin's Journey. We I know we talked about it on on our other stuff, but sometimes I forget. Go check it out. It's this, if you love Barrage or you love crazy euros this is going to be one of those the art and the play style is all very unique darwin's journey now on kickstarter i don't know how unique it looks i mean as i've said before i it's by simone luciani and i'm happy to try anything he's played but quite frankly i'm interested in giving it a try and we will probably before too uh before too long i don't know unique might be a bit of a stretch though 
looks just like a, another solid worker placement to me, which is fine, but we'll see. That is the news and why it sometimes matters. Now on to our feature game of the week, which is Dogs of War, which I realized, I guess it's not the the, the feature game of the week. The feature game of the bye week is Dogs of War. Excellent point, Walker. Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> Dogs of War was designed by Paolo Mori and published by Simon in 2014. It was kickstarted. Paolo Mori at the time had published Vasco da Gama, which was a kind of sort of functional worker placement thing, and Libertalia, which is a simultaneous action selection game, which had a very interesting notion of using the subset of a large deck of possible personality cards. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, for my taste, I ended up feeling a little too wild and random, although that's very much the style of game that it is. Since publishing Dogs of War, Paolo Mori has gone on to do a number of very interesting things and has really cemented his position as one of our favorite Euro designers. He designed Pandemic Fall of Rome, which, for my money, is probably my favorite Pandemic version. He's also designed Blitzkrieg, which is kind of sort of Dogs of War in a two-player version. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Dogs of War? So, in Dogs of War, you're pitting great houses against each other and adding your support to where you see fit. You're making a play to have the most influence in the houses that come out on top. It really is a game of risk assessment and timing. Do you start a battle to get the reward, or do you hop in on the winning side to get the battle bonus? That is my very unhelpful summary of dogs of I think it would be helpful to just start off by talking about why we're discussing Dogs of War now. I mean, we often go back to the back catalog of games that were published five or ten years ago and want to talk about games that we think are interesting and or valuable. Uh, but one of the reasons why we're talking about Dogs of War now, I think it's safe to say, is in times of crisis, I personally like to go back to the old favorites. And <laughs> this is an opportunity to revisit a game that we've been playing off and on for years and I've been enjoying ever since it was originally published. And it's uh, an accessible, low-impact game that nonetheless offers a lot of, of, of very satisfying choices, very much like Undaunted Normandy does. And I only make that comparison because Undaunted Normandy is the first game we reviewed at the start of the prior lockdown. So it was a sort of a nice, warm comfort blanket uh, in times of crisis and stress. That's right. It's also a game that just does not get as much light as it should. So it's nice to be able to bring it to the forefront to our little group of listeners. Unfortunately, unlike when we talk about some other games, uh, Asgard's Chosen come to mind, uh, Dogs of War is very hard to find. And so we apologize for that. But nonetheless, we like talking about Dogs of War because there's some interesting things to point out and some design threads that I think personally are sadly underused in the worker placement sphere, because this is very much a worker placement game. And I complained a lot about how a lot of worker placement games don't really leverage that to get into very satisfying player interaction, but you cannot make that criticism of Dogs of War. Dogs of War has, right from your first placement, a sense of conflict and competition with the other players, because everything is a tug of war. 
all the worker spaces where you can go. Sometimes you're not go. Sometimes you go to the worker spaces because you don't care about the fight. That's fine, and there are there are trade offs involved there, and we'll talk more about that later. But every placement you do has such an immediate impact on the fates and fortunes of all the other players that you cannot sleep on anyone's turns. And that's one of the ways in which I think Dogs of War stands head and shoulders above a lot of the other also rands in terms of worker placement euros. Yeah, not only is the decision space huge there, but everything else on the peripherals is fantastic too, right? The fact that it's so quick to ease to set up, so easy to teach. It's It's got, you know, very minimal rule set. It's, you know, placing a worker, getting the benefits, area majority, and then you're simply counting up, you know, who wins each battle. And you do that, you know, four times and then you're done. So with every placement, there's a question of who do I support? What benefits do I want? What am I competing over? What tempo am I giving up? What opportunity cost am I paying for going here as opposed to there? Because on top of the fact that there are these tugs of war that you're participating in, throwing resources into making sure that one house wins over another, there all the worker spa- places are on these cards which are called orders orders of battle. And they are what determine your immediate benefit by placing there. So you're contributing to an overall seesaw that's going to be resolved at the end of the round. But you're also competing over the first come first serve elements, which almost every worker placement has, of what's on the order of battle. And those trade-offs, which are in turn, as you say, informed by tempo, are so delicious and tense. And it's one of the the primary things that drives the decision-making in Dogs of War. Yeah, the balance on those cards are fantastic the fact that it gives you it, it, you know entices you with just enough goodies to want you, to make you want to go there even though you know it's a bad decision even though you look at you know the side the fact that they always give you different matchups along the along the rows and and the cards are mixed up it's like oh, I really need those coins but it's on the yellow side and nobody likes yellow but I really need those coins I'll just throw one worker away and get that before nobody else does and it's funny you mentioned coins because that's one of the striking things that I always have to re-remember every time I play Dogs of War. How brutally scarce money is. There are not a whole lot of different resources in Dogs of War. Most of the time it's it's fundamentally about points versus cash. And the cash that you're getting, you desperately need to buy more troops because every worker you place has to be accompanied by a troop. And you're not going to win fights, and you're not going to be able to influence the overall status of the different houses, which is this beautiful stock mechanism in which you're kind of sort of investing in different houses. And they're going to pay off based on how many fights they win by the end of the game. But if you don't have enough money to throw into having really powerful units, you're not going to be able to influence that element of the board state. So, again, yet another set of trade-offs on this very, very simple economy, but nonetheless pulls you in a lot of different directions. Yeah, I have that as one of my notes, too. It's the, the amount of money, the amount of leaders you get, the cards. This is, there's this card system where you get these uh, interesting uh, sort Tactics of one-time... Cards tactics cards where you get like a one-time benefit or you can trade them in for money and they even worked it into these player powers because every player has their own special unique power and one you know works off these cards and it's and the fact that these special powers are so different and have such an impact on the game but they don't seem like they're super overpowering you know what i mean it sort of just works within the grain of the game well, several of the special powers actually key off of the tactics cards, and that actually is a good way to dovetail to one of the big controversies surrounding Dogs of War, which is the perennial controversy for every Simon game, and that is the Kickstarter exclusives. For a while, Dogs of War was very readily available 
in the secondary market, but the Kickstarter exclusive captains, the, the different player factions, were very, very, very hard to get. Well, now we're in a position where pretty much everything is difficult to get. So that, the, you know, the furor over that has died down a little by virtue of, of, of comparison. Uh, but the extra captains, although, as I say, scarce, a lot of them deal with tactics cards almost exclusively like there's the one power you just mentioned that you can just ditch a tactics card to get two dollars another power is every time you draw a tactics card draw three pick one the one i like the most is the one who can play every tactics card as a betrayal because you nominally have to commit to what side of the battle you're on but there's this there's a betrayal card which is somewhat scarce and very very good to have at the right time which allows you to fight on both sides of the same fight but the one faction can play any card as a betrayal card and those parts are neat and they can be proxied easily. That's the good news about not having the Kickstarter exclusive. Those the, the the key additional gameplay benefit of the exclusives are the extra gameplay captains, and those can be proxied easily. So, and then there's the overall theme. Like at first, I thought, what do I have written here? It is a huge, a huge feeling of theme without them even trying. Right. Mm. And this is only because I never actually read the rule book myself until today, and there is almost fifteen full pages of theme. But, like I said, I had not seen those, but you still have this feeling of these houses, you know, this internal struggle between these houses, you know, vying for power, and the fact that the way the art's done, they all have this unique style, and you can tell that they have this culture and this whole, you know, atmosphere that's going on, without even having to read any of all this fluff that they have typed out. And then, Mark? I don't know. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you there, because... I think that the game does a very good job of selling a mood. Uh, part of that is just the impressive visual design. But in terms of any thematic detail past, there are these noble houses that are fighting all the time and they need you as mercenary captains to help them out. I mean, honestly, I don't know why one of the houses is led by some guy who looks like Dr. Octopus. And I don't know why he's fighting that lady who's got the weird hair and she wears a blindfold all the time. And I've read... The rule book. I've read that 15 pages of, of, of fluff text, but what's bizarre about it is it's all about these noble houses and nothing is about the player factions. The actual players, the people that you control, the ones whose actions you're taking are kind of relegated to an afterthought. It's, it's a little bizarre. It's not a problem, uh, but it's just so strange that so much narrative effort was de devoted to the houses that are kind of your pawns in effect. They do nothing without your direct intervention. But the hats, Mark. The hats. Oh, the hats, yes. Tell us about the hats, Walker. Well, I'm just saying in this in this alternate universe, I guess it's it's wearing a hat is where it's at. <laughs> I'm I'm reminded of this is a bit of a stretch, but I'm reminded of various shows. Uh this is particularly true of some anime, where if you ever see a character who is wearing a cape fighting a character not wearing a cape, you know the one with the cape is gonna win. It's just a foregone conclusion. There's 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 no point having any degree of suspense. Here Every, this is where the game is overproduced in the best possible way. This is where Simon decided, let's take what's basically uh, a, a straightforward worker placement affair in terms of components and zhuzh them up past all reason. Every worker is this bust of the mercenary captain that you're playing, and they're exquisitely sculpted, and they have so much personality, and they all have this glorious headwear. Everyone, every single faction has a different, over-elaborate hat, hat wear. It's kind of like watching the nobility in Britain go to church. It is so over-the-top and wonderful. It's so visually compelling. I love it. I love it. And then we already talked about the cards, the benefits you get from the cards, and there's the benefits you get from the battles. 
And some of these seem to be the influence tokens that you get that you need to win the game. And those spots just to, those spots and those benefits seem in the last few games that we played to be by far the most powerful spots to go. So I'm wondering if it's the game is leading more in that direction. Anyway, that's what I found in the last few games we played. Well, it depends, right? Because it's very much a stock mechanism. And the influence tokens of the various houses can be worth a lot of points if they've won all their fights or if they've won a lot of their fights handily. Or on the other hand, as was in the case in the last time we played, some of them are going to be worth negative points because they couldn't catch a win to save your life. And so committing early to getting those influence tokens can be very dangerous. Near the end of the game, of course, if you see a house is doing very, very well, and the worst thing that can happen to them is is means that they're still going to be worth uh, very remunerative, obviously, yes, they're going to be hotly contested. But by the same token, earlier on in the game, it's a huge risk. And it's the people who snap, snatch up those tokens and then go to the work of making the houses worthwhile by the end of it, they then tend to reap the rewards. And that's where you can get a lot of good profit. It's true. And, and if you feel a fight is not going well or the whole turn is not going well then you're not forced to play your guys out and i like how they do that with the turn order you can pass early and get the first turn so you'll have the first chance to get those benefits next round it's interesting you say that i I, that's another area in which worker placement games often suffer and that is in weird turn order issues and i find that dogs of war does a very very good job of minimizing that because Although, as you say, there's some ability to manipulate how the turn order is going to work. Whoever passes first gets to be start player for the next round. But there are advantages to going last. Sometimes you want to be first. Sometimes you want to be last. And you don't have a whole lot of control about where you're going to be over in the course of the turn. But the fact that there are uh, compensatory advantages to every element in the turn order means that I don't end up caring all that much and just trying to focus on how I can leverage where I happen to be in the turn order rather than griping about the fact that I'm sitting to the left or right of the person who's constantly first or last. Last, Lastly for me is just the the length of the game. Like I said, it takes four rounds. You are going to get some minimal points during the game, like depending on how the battles go and how many leaders are on the other side. If you win a battle, and we talked about the battle bonuses. We didn't really say you only get those battle bonuses if you win the battle. And it's, I love it's this, you know, back and forth. Not only do you have to win the battle, but you also have to have to have the majority in that box as well. It's this fantastic back and forth. But anyway, four rounds, the game is done. I, it's a great length. And the fact that it incorporates the player count, I just want to say that quickly too, that it plays best at five and there's not many games out there you can say that about. I wouldn't necessarily go that far. I mean, there's a lot of Euros that are best with five, especially Euros where they're, it, it's focused primarily on area majority competitions. You know, the classic examples of those would be the the Amon Ray, the El Grande, but of course that's more for like 20 years ago. But I, I will say that, yes, more contemporary Euros, uh, they tend to add more players and it just bloats onto the length. Uh, I would happily play Dogs of War with four or five. I've played with three before. There are a couple different ways to do it. I don't think it quite works to its best advantage. I'd rather play something else with three. Uh, but I agree. It, it's, it has a very, very good length. I just want to emphasize again that the artwork is very compelling. I find it, it's, again, I don't find it communicates much narrative or character, but I do find it communicates a definite mood of a historical period. It's got this Renaissance guilt thing going on with some steampunk elements. It's guilt in all the best possible way. Yellow curlicues around the edge of the board. The artwork is done by a couple of French artists who've done a lot of board game work. I believe they used to be working in conjunction with Rackham, Mathieu Arlo, and Christophe Madura, 
big fan of their work. I don't know if this was on purpose or not, but I like how all of the houses and all the leaders are rendered perfectly as people, but all the troops are these abstract things. Like, like we don't, we don't, they go out and fight. We don't care much about them. We we (laughs) tell them to go out and do it. They'll let us know if they win and then we will go from there. (laughs) Well, they're they're meant to be steampunk automata, really. Uh, So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, the steampunk element is, as I say, one of the house leaders is basically Dr. Octopus. He he literally has these weird machi- machinery attached to it. There's a lot of visual design going on in Dogs of War. I'm, it all manages to end up being surprisingly consistent. Uh, I just don't know what what mad genius came up with all this, all these different juxtapositions. Now you touched on the the Kickstarter leaders, but there is there are some things that we modify sometimes in the game. I just want you to go over that yes. very quickly. There's like a leader that we never play with and so on. Yeah, so uh, one of the virtues, I should say, of some of the Kickstarter houses is it means that you can turf Lady Macbeth. Uh, Lady Macbeth is, I don't know, I I go back and forth. I've, 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 I mostly think she's a little too strong, particularly because her ability is very, very good at denying everybody else benefits. And she can end up really running the table by virtue of things, especially since I don't like the dynamics she introduces to the game, suffice to say. So having more captains available means you can you can kick her to the curb, which is a shame because she she has, it's worth emphasizing, such a good hat. And the other captains uh, tend to work a little bit better in conjunction with each other. There's also the fact that one of the Kickstarter exclusive orders of battle, I find, has an outsized influence on the ultimate fight. It's one that basically has room for very, very powerful units, and each one of those placements gives you four points. And I thought it could be very determinative. Somebody just runs the table on that card. They get a massive amount of points. They cause that house to win a crushing victory. It just it, it upsets the, 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 the nature of the game in a way that I don't like, so I turf that one as well. But the most important thing to note are the designer variants. A few years ago, Paolo Mori showed up on BoardGameGeek, and with the unassuming thread title of Some Variants I Didn't Playtest Yet, suggested a series of alterations to the base game that, in my estimation, and the estimation of the people that we play with, improve the game dramatically. I played and enjoyed the game before these alterations, but honestly, these alterations, I think, substantially improve the experience. And uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. It has now, it, it seems strange that this is the only relic of it, because again, it says I didn't playtest yet. It's now been playtested by many people, and it is, I think, safe to say, I've never heard anyone who tried these alterations and didn't find that they preferred it. It increases the dynamism, it increases the stakes, it increases the importance of making good stock decisions. I thoroughly recommend it. It's canon now, Mark. Sounds good to me. Do you want to spend a little bit of time talking about Blitzkrieg, World War II? Sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> so a couple of years ago, uh, PSC Games published a game by Palomari called Blitzkrieg World War II in Nine Minutes. And for all intents and purposes, it is Dogs of War for two players. We've talked about it before on the podcast. We got a review copy from PSC Games. It's got that same worker placement coupled with tug of war elements. It's... Got a number of innovations for Blitzkrieg, some of which to accommodate the theme, some of them to accommodate the player count, and some of them just because they're design variants on this fundamental idea. And I, I stress this not just because it's a worthy iteration of the of the game ideas, but because it's a shame that Dogs of War is so hopelessly out of print. But if you're interested in some of these ideas, I can heart, uh, wholeheartedly recommend you try Blitzkrieg World War II in 90 Minutes. 
it's got this fantastic, like you said, the tug of war, and you know the chipset that you have. So you have this limited hand. You know what chips are left in the bag, and so you have to you have to know where to commit and where to get other bonuses because there's all sorts of bonuses you get on the map when you place as well. So it's this very interesting balance of what chips to use, where, and when to get bonuses, and which battles to let go and which battles to fight. It's it's a very interesting and fantastic two-player game. It's got that same fundamental tension of pulling you in a variety of different directions. I want to show up in this battle, but I don't know which side I want to show up, and I don't know what, what placement bonus I want to get. But, oh, over there, I really need to take care of that fire right now because there's a time pressure. It, all those different trade-offs are, are so interesting and tense, and it's the, the, the major overlap between Blitzkrieg and Dogs of War. Plus, there's an expansion mark where you get to play Godzilla, so it wins. It's true. It's true. Do you know what would make it even better, though, if Godzilla had a hat? It's it's true. Or went to a tea party. Well, there we go. I think we now need uh, Blitzkrieg Dogs of War in 20 minutes featuring Godzilla wearing a hat at a tea party. Uh, yeah, I think we should trademark that because that will be stolen for sure. <laughs> that and Zombabees, yeah. So to sum up, it's really a shame, I think, that Dogs of War is so hopelessly out of print. I really wish that some multiplayer version of the central idea would be republished because, again, when you compare it to so many other worker placement games, just to pick one as an example to pick on, we talked a couple weeks ago about Dwellings of Eldervale that tried to introduce this sort of head-to-head competitiveness with respect to worker placement, and it just wrecked the fundamental economy. It pulled people in arbitrary directions. It was unsatisfying. On the other hand, when you look at a design like Dogs of War, where it's worker placement, but you're fun fundamentally in each other's face all the time and not even just in a way to compete over scarce resources there's that but also in the sense of trying to influence the outcome of a battle it's so well done has that tight player interaction that a lot of euro games are missing i'm a huge fan of dogs of war i've been a, a supporter of it ever since it got released if you can find a copy by all means give it a shot failing that if you've got two players blitzkrieg world war ii in 20 minutes is an excellent substitution for many purposes it has my enthusiastic recommendation. I will play it anytime it's put in front of me. Well, that's going to do it for us for this week. Thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.